please take a seat. And let me add my welcome to David. Thank you for leading us through our service, David. My name is Callum, one of the pastors in training here. If you have that Bible uh, that you were reading from earlier, do open it up again to Luke chapter 15. Uh, we're going to be reading from that. Uh, but let me first come before the Lord in prayer to seek his help tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus, the greatest storyteller. Thank you for his love in sharing the stories that he had, that we might understand salvation, that we might understand you better. Lord, help us with what for many might be a familiar passage. Would you guard our hearts against thinking that we have this all figured out and that we have nothing to be taught? But Lord, by your spirit, by the preaching of your words, speak to us. Oh Father, use this ransom life in any way you choose. And may our song forever be, our only boast is in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Tonight we're looking at the third in a series of three stories that Jesus told. Uh, if you were with us last week, uh, Pierre-Yves, who taught from the first two stories told us about a time when he was searching for some sunglasses. And in the Lord's kindness over the last couple of weeks, uh, God has provided my own story. Uh, I was away on a, a family holiday uh, with my wife Claire and daughter Lois and the in-laws. And we had a lovely time at the south of Spain. Uh, but flying back, I realized having sat on my seat on the plane that my laptop, my tablet, my headphones were all somewhere in Malaga Airport. Nightmare. <laughs> uh, rest assured, uh, I can't say quite rejoice. Uh, my stuff has been found. It is currently in some UPS depot somewhere in the UK. Uh, please pray for me that they are returned safely tomorrow, that I might share in my rejoicing with you. But this is a, a famous story of lost and found. And to understand it, it is in some ways similar to what has gone before. But Jesus, as the greatest storyteller, ramps it up a bit. This is indeed a climax of the three lost and found stories that Jesus gives. And to understand it, first I want to ask you a question. What do you think of your relationship with God? What do you think of your relationship with God? To some of you, it, you might feel that, that God is, is like a teacher, a good teacher, who we uh, learn things from, who, who reveals to us how we ought to live our life. 
And in response, we, we want to please this teacher. We want to earn his favor. Maybe in a slightly more extreme setting of that, we might think of, of God as some sort of slave master, some sort of boss of some evil lord, someone who is to be feared, and we are to work hard not to anger. Maybe you see God as a teacher or as a bad boss. Maybe on the flip side, you see God instead as maybe the creator of the world, maybe set the world spinning and then disappeared to leave us to it, to figure out things for ourselves. Not very present in daily life. Or maybe, in fact, you would go one step further and say, there is no God. And we are, in fact, left to to figure out things for ourselves. There was a a banner on on London buses a number of years ago. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. We, We lose a sense of enjoyment of our life if we try and force in some sort of divine creator. Someone who, who we need to subject ourselves to. What do you think of your relationship with God? As a teacher? As some feared Lord? Some distant creator? Or non-existent entirely? Well, I I would argue from this parable that Jesus teaches tonight that one fundamental and probably primary category is missing. And we'll find out what that is. Now, for context to this parable, we need to look again, as as we read through, Ross read through the entire of uh, Luke 15, that it starts in verses 1 to 3, that the tax collectors and sinners who are drawing near to Jesus, this is causing a lot of grumbling among the Pharisees and teachers of the law. That Jesus is this man who welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus tells these three stories. These three, part of the one parable. The first two stories seem to have a a real focus on on the search of the rejoicing, having made that search. And this final longer parable, in fact the longest parable that Jesus teaches, fills in more detail on the lost. Now remember that this, as we read this story and glean lessons from this story... That this is a story within a story. That while we read about this parable, we have to understand what is going on in the minds of the Pharisees whom Jesus is teaching. Jesus starts this story in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. So our first point tonight that Jesus is teaching from these two sons. The first son, Jesus is teaching, repent rebels, those who are far off, in verses 11 to 24. 
Now we see in this parable that this man had had two sons, and the younger one says to his father in verse 12, Father, give me my share of the estate. He's asking for his inheritance, which of course would come after the father would have died. He would have split his inheritance between his two sons. But here is a son who is assessing his father's property, his, far, his father's farm, and he's wanting it now. He is essentially saying to his father, Father, I, I would rather that you were dead. Give me that thing that is due to me after you die. Give it to me now. I want it now. Now think of the culture of what is going on here. This is not some youngster who is uh, looking to find himself on going on a gap year of traveling a bit of finding himself. No, in this culture, this agricultural culture, this culture which identifies itself with the heart of the family unit, to take that possession and to run off with it is essentially to reject your family to doom. The father and the, the rest of the estate is to fight for themselves on a smaller amount of land, of property, where it is very much hand-to-mouth for survival. For a son, you have sons and daughters in order to survive in this culture. And for one of those sons to reject you, to go off his own way, amounts to murder. What is his mindset? At most, it's, it's an avenue to acquire possessions. He doesn't want have anything to do with the Father. At worst, he wishes he doesn't exist. The Pharisees hearing this, stepping outside of the story, they would be raging at the prospect of this happening. This is, this is un, unseen. This is unthinkable. And yet, what does the father do? He, he lovingly acts on his son's request. He doesn't need to. He would have good grounds to actually rebuke his son. But no, he, he lovingly gives, splits up his inheritance between his two sons. This would be shocking enough. And the son, after not too long, verse 13, goes off to a, a distant country. Again, think for Israel, a distant country. You're going off to a land of the Gentiles. You're going off to a land of the enemy. This is not just a rejection of a father. This is a rejection of a father, the wider family, the community in which he lives, his entire nation he is turning his back on. And instead of living for God, what does he put his possessions towards? He puts them towards reckless living, wild, desolate living, overindulgence, unrestraint. Think of the Pharisees. They, they are even more raging at this point. And it is at this point, after spending all of those possessions... In that indulgence, a severe famine hits that country. 
it mentions specifically that country, not a general famine, but where this sun is, and a severe one at that. Now we think of, of, of famine or um, of a lack of rain, that it might dry up some riverbeds. But again, in a farming community, you are dependent on a good crop each year. And we see that this despair that this son is facing is not just down to his own uh, poor judgment, but seemingly bad luck. That there is, is famine throughout the land and he is beginning to be in need, the text says. Now the Jews would interpret this as a, as a right, a just judgment from God. How dare this man go off, reject his, his father? How dare this son use this possession for reckless living? He is getting what deserves coming to him. And we think that as well, don't we? We think that, that those who do good things ought to have good things happen to them. Those who have bad things happen to them, well, they deserved it because of the way they've been living. But it is in this place, in this moment of need, that the son starts to realize his urgency. And think about it for us. Sometimes God might discipline us with circumstances around us to humble us into repentance. Not always, but sometimes, in order for us to question what we are doing with our lives. So what does the son do? Verse 16, he, he hires himself out, the text says. Uh, but this isn't a great translation. He's basically aligning himself with a citizen of that country, one of these Gentiles. It's not so much that he's, he's found a little day job just to pay for enough food to come in. It's more like he is an illegal immigrant with no rights to work or to earn a living. He is literally shadowing someone, hoping to pick up any scraps that might be going. But there is no guarantee, there is no certainty that he'll be having anything to eat each day. And what does this guy send him off to do? He sends him out to the fields to look after pigs. Again, the Jews, the Pharisees, are rolling around laughing at this point. This is the lowest of the low. Not only is he cast off to a Gentile nation with a severe famine, with no more possessions, but he is having to deal with pigs, the uncleanest of animals in the Jewish culture. They would be loving this judgment on him. And it is at this point, in the lowest of the low, where he sees that the pigs actually have a higher status than he does, that he comes to his senses, verse 17. And it is sometimes, I think, only after our mistakes and our circumstances that out of our control, that we realize our desperate and helpless needs. And what does he do? What does he say? How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare while I'm here starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hard servants. 
He had sinned against heaven and against him, his father. His chief offense is against God. His chief offense isn't necessarily that he has spent all this money in reckless living. It is his treatment of his father. Now think about it for us. Do you see your offense against God? We live in a a beautiful world full of God's blessings, and yet we, we think of God, the God concept, as some sort of oppressive regime. We know how to We think we know how to best use these these gifts and abilities, these blessings. We think we know how to use them best, not God. It seems so incredibly limited and, and such a killjoy that God would instruct us how we ought to live in this world. We know better, surely. The purpose of our our lives becomes freedom and happiness and living life to the full. And these are good things. But pursuing them in an absence of a relationship with God is to undermine him. And it's worse than that. It's as a rebellious mutiny against him. It's the equivalent Jesus is teaching here from this parable of turning to our father, spitting in his face, and wishing him dead. That is what we do when we deny the existence of a creator. If you are wired to to think that that God doesn't exist, or or at most that God's created the world, set it spinning, and left us to it, you'll be somewhere along this spectrum of enjoying, enjoying life and the common gifts of grace that God has kindly given you. But divorced from the giver, enjoyment of the gifts will not and cannot last. Some others of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The reserves of those good gifts are running out. And you are aware of your need. There is a gaping hole. In one way or another, you, like the squandering son, are starving to death. You need to return to your father. Repent back to God who can save your life. Now, Christians listening here who who are trusting in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be wary of this to in our walk, in thinking that in some areas of our lives, if, if we are covered by the grace of God that he has gifted to us, if we enjoy that grace that he has given us, then we can live however we want. We get a free pass to sin. But that is not what we are called to do. That is to, to cheapen, is to re, uh, reduce the, the sacrifice that Jesus offers the justification that he gives us to mere cheap grace. That's what we do when we we separate, when we distance ourselves from the giver of the greatest gift. 
those who, who give sin a pass because Jesus covers it anyway, we need to be careful. It stems from a, a cold and distant love for your loving Heavenly Father. Whether you believe in a God or not, those of us who are distant from Him and sinning in that distance from Him, we need to repent. Do you see your offense? Now, what sort of father will the squandering son find? Will you find when we repent and admit our guilt as rebels? Well, we see that in what the son says and the journey he travels out, we know the son knows that he deserves judgment and he has no defense. Verse 19, he says he is, he is not worthy This isn't just a a nice gesture that he's going to be making, but this is correct. He is not worthy to be called a son. He wants to be a hired servant, one up from his current situation like an illegal immigrant, a day laborer, not a household servant, but just enough to survive, to stave off death. He's putting his life in the hands of his father hoping, trusting in the character of the father that he knows, who has already shown undeserved kindness towards him at the start of the story. Not that he should expect or deserve any mercy for what he has done, but he is still asking for a master-slave kind of salvation, that God would be, that the father would be the best master to have than his current master? How can he possibly ask or imagine for more? Well, we see the response of the father in verse 20. This is the turning point. The Jews would be seeing this as as an opportunity for the father to exact judgment on his son himself. They'd be licking their lips at the opportunity for the the father to execute judgment. But what do we get? Verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, his pre-prepared Uh, repentant speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. He was still a long way off. He looked completely different to what his father saw him going down the road years previous. He is malnourished. He is stinking of the pigsty from which he's come. He is covered in the uncleanness of the pigs. And yet his father sees him a long way off. And as David prayed earlier, he does not wait for him to arrive at the gate. He runs to him. This would be unthinkable in this Jewish community that this father would shame himself by picking up his robes and running 
throwing himself on the Son, who is unclean, not worthy to be touched or brought near, and yet the Father embraces him, kisses him. What a transformation. The Son who is coming appealing for a low-level slavery is welcomed back into the household as a son with all the rights that go with that. The change is instantaneous, quick, dress him. This is his identity. This lost son is found, and I am restoring him. This is the love of God. This is the love that God has for sinners who are far away. The Pharisees would be shocked, to say the least. This does not happen. The world does not operate like this. This is the gospel. The God who loves sent his son to pay the penalty for them. That they might inherit eternal life. The fattened calf, the fattened calf is killed. This is a celebration. Not just round the dinner table for the father to enjoy with his son, but everyone is involved. Everyone is invited. There'd probably be enough for a hundred portions from this fattened calf. Everyone is invited to enjoy this. The father is not ashamed to celebrate with his son. He is overjoyed. He once was dead and is alive again. This is a resurrection story. It's not just that these sinners who are coming to Jesus had to change, had a new life motto by coming to him. This is a radical transformation involving life and death. It is a work of new birth. Spiritual blindness has given way to faith in in spiritual sight. They are not ashamed to share the table with Jesus because he is the one, the only one, who can make them clean. They have heard the invitation and counted the cost, as was talked about in Luke 14, and responded in repentance and faith. And God loves that. Christ loves that. If you respond to the good news of the gospel, if you call out for forgiveness, if you repent, this is the God who meets you. You are not merely called a hired slave, but a son, a daughter of God, truly loved, truly forgiven, truly restored to enjoy a flourishing relationship with the God who so desperately sought you and found you and delights over you. The Father's love here sets the tone for this celebration. But the Father's love is not restrained to just this Son, as we'll see in the second point. 
And I think this is the, in fact, if anything, the main and the harder teaching point for the Pharisees and for us. Hard because it crashes up against the heart of the Pharisees. Hard because the message lands on a very hard and hardening soil. Hard because it it shakes the very fabric of an earthly religious worldview. Are you ready? May we pray that we have ears to hear this. This is our second point, looking at the second son. Repent, rule keepers, those who are near. By this point in the storytelling, Jesus has shocked the Pharisees. And he has grabbed their their full undivided attention. At this point, Jesus turns the focus to the other son, the second son, who I've called the slaving son. We pick it up in verse 25. The elder son is out in the field as well as the younger son was out in the field, working a long shift, and he comes back close to the house, and here's the party. He asks what's going on, and he is enraged. He refuses to go in, not in my name. He's angry at both the brother and his father. And what does he say after the father comes out to him? Verse 29, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now, I, I think lots of us hearing this, including me, have a tendency to feel sorry for the older brother. He seems to be making a fair point. And sure, he might be acting out a bit selfishly in his anger, which he should repent for. But the injustice he is expressing is something that we resonate with. He has put up all of these years. He has worked faithfully, apparently without any acknowledgement. And this waster swans in. And it's not just spared humiliation and punishment, but is is celebrated. How can this be right? In saying this, Jesus is tapping into the way that the Pharisees are thinking about God and righteousness, which reveals another way in which some of us are wired. Instead of those who, who do away with God, either pretending he does not exist or think we can do a better job, instead of that idea, some of us love the concept of a God. Some of us love the fact that there is a moral framework to this world and laws to live by and and some concepts that that are good. The idea that there is a a cosmic rule maker who, who gives us an orderly playbook by which we ought to live by and the world ought to operate. Who gives us neat categories of what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Who are good people, who are bad people. 
what the rewards are for good behavior and what the punishments are for bad behavior. We are people who, instead of thinking God isn't there in a, in a positive sense, make him out to be a teacher who we can earn the favor for. Or more likely, in a, in a negative sense, a cruel master who we are to be enslaved to and we are to avoid upsetting by playing by the laws. Because at the heart of this, this is the problem. Though we say we are worshiping God, it is a self-centered religion. As much self-centered as the squandering son who, who broke for freedom. And by living by this, it is just as deadly. When you look at the details of what the, the older son actually says, it reveals his heart. And the two sons are actually not that different in quite a number of ways. As I mentioned, both are out in the field. Both are away from the home. The younger son was far off, but the, son, the older son was near the home, and yet not inside it. He despises the father just as the younger son did. Did you notice that as he starts speaking in verse 29? He does not say father as the younger son did repeatedly all the way through. He says, look. He doesn't give him his title. He uses slave language. All these years I have been slaving for you. That's what the, the younger son was, was appealing to and trying to come back, wasn't it? Treat me like one of your hired servants. Both despised the other brother. The younger son despised his brother by rejecting the home and going off on his own. But this older brother won't even call him his brother. He calls him this son of yours. He can't even bring him to call him his brother. But crucially, both were actually given an inheritance at the start of the story. Did you notice that? It wasn't just the younger brother given his inheritance and sent on his merry way. But the older son receives his too. In fact, as per Jewish law, he would have probably received the lion's share of the inheritance. But in getting this inheritance, we see what he wants. He just wants the possessions. He wants a young goat. All, his, all the possessions are his. He's received his inheritance, and yet he still claims that he wants some possession from his father. And how does he want to enjoy those possessions? He says here that he wants to enjoy with my friends. This son, no doubt, would have been at the dinner table every night with his father. But he wants a meal away from the father. Not too dissimilar to the younger son, who packed up all he had and went on his merry way for a feast somewhere else. Both are proud both are guilty of pride. It's just expressed differently. Both have a man-centered God at the heart of it. But here's the contrast. Though one was far away, he remembered the goodness of the Father and is now home. The older one, though 
close daily, could experience the relationship of his father daily, but finds no joy in it. This is the tragedy of cold, rule-keeping religion. The fancy name is legalism. It promises so many good things of being of inheriting eternal life, of pleasing our Heavenly Father. All through good things, good behavior, good laws. The Pharisees had memorized Scripture. They served diligently at the synagogue. They tithed their money. But they cannot earn their salvation. When they are saying they're doing it all in the name of God, they're doing it in their own name. They're doing it in their own strength. And their, selfs, their self-righteousness rears its ugly heads when, when others that they would reject according to their laws that they have twisted are welcomed in by repentance and faith. The slaving son is angry at the other son, but he is more angry at the forgiveness extended by the father. That's crucial. In the same way, the Pharisees are angry at the sinners and tax collectors. But their real grievance is against God, against Jesus, who welcomes them. Friends, there are, there are some here who attend church services religiously, who serve, who give charitably, but it is done so rejecting the love of God, the Father who they claim to serve. The rule keepers need to repent and put their faith only in God to save them in undeserved grace. In telling this story, Jesus is not saying that love wins, that God just forgets about sins if you just come back to him. Nonsense. It's the father who bears the cost himself of the sins that the squandering son and the slaving son had incurred. The inheritance lost is absorbed by the father. He bears the shame of welcoming his spiritually unclean and sinful son back into his household. The sinners coming to Jesus aren't just lovingly accepted and Jesus has said, forget about it. He welcomes them knowing that he will have to die for them. He will have to pay the punishment for them. That those who are dead can be made alive again. Only by uniting to him in his resurrection. What would you do if, if you as the father, had just received this onslaught from the older son. He could just reject him. He could go back into the house and enjoy the party, leave him to grovel outside. But instead, Jesus says, that the father goes out to him. He pleads with him. Verse 31 and 32. He's a pleading father. He says that all he has is his son's. He wants to enjoy a relationship with him. 
that is to be enjoyed. But it was necessary to celebrate. The NIV sort of says we, we had to celebrate. But crucially, it is necessary. It is non-negotiable to enjoy this return of this lost son. Not just a, a polite, forced smile, but genuine happiness, genuine joy. We are to celebrate our brothers and sisters coming into repentance and faith and united to the Lord Jesus. And think of the application here. Whoever you are, whatever you're, the way you're wired, whether you are, are wired to seek freedom from breaking from the, from the rules or freedom by abiding in those rules, there is a loving Heavenly Father calling out to you, seeking for you, and who is overjoyed at all who come to repentance and faith. If you are not a Christian here tonight, there is a God in heaven who loves you, who wants nothing more than for you to come back into repentance with him. It is only by the death of Jesus that you can be saved. Will you accept this invitation? And for my Christian brothers and sisters, though we are trusting in that death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are to, ongo we are to keep going in that. We are not to revert back into either a legalistic sense of trying to obey God's rules and earn our salvation back or to think we have a freedom to sin. And crucially also, we are to welcome our fellow sinner as a brother or sister in Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the uniqueness of the gospel, that it is founded on loving forgiveness. Lord, there is no way that we can live, whether by religion or freedom of religion, that can truly, truly satisfy, that can truly save. Thank you, Lord, that Christianity is more than just a law book of rule keeping. Thank you that it is richer than a cheap grace mentality. But it is founded on sacrificial love in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, please, for whoever has ears, let them hear. In Jesus' name.